before we start today, let's go ahead and close and let's start with a word of prayer here real quick. You guys would bow your heads with me. Lord, I just ask as we get ready to go through this message and we get ready to hear your word, Lord, that um, you remind us that it's about you. Lord, it's not about me. It's not about the people sitting out here in front of me. It's not possibly even about the people that are hear this on the radio, Lord. It's all about you, your word being spread out there for the glory of you. Lord, I ask that you allow the word to work through me and to the hearts of those that are out here. Lord, we just ask this all in your precious son, Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I tell you guys which verses to turn to, but I'm going to be bouncing around so much. You can turn to Matthew because about 80% of them are in that book. But I can't guarantee I'll stay there. So, um, This message today has been really difficult over the last three days for me. I can't tell you why, um, not because I don't want to. I don't know. Um, the biggest issue I've come across is the fact that while going over this and constantly changing it and constantly mixing it in and constantly putting new things and taking things out of it, I've discovered that exactly what I'm going to talk to you guys today about affected me personally. Because I don't match up with all of these things that I came up with that the Bible saying I'm supposed to be. I know I don't. I know nobody here does. There's only one person that does. But what I want to start on here is what today's view of a Christian is. I've had the opportunity on more than one occasion to walk the SIU campus at lunch with my friend Dan Richardson, uh, who took me under his wing and was trying to teach me how to evangelize, or in, in what he called, he was teaching me discipleship by going out, literally walking the campus, finding random people that we didn't know that looked like they either weren't busy or busy, not busy enough that it wouldn't bother if we, you know, chimed in. And simply asking them the first question of, so what do you think a Christian is? Ladies and gentlemen, it's heartbreaking to hear what some of those answers are. You get simple questions of, well, they're the hypocrites. They're the extremists. They're the wackos that believe in that God. And some, the even more heartbreaking, are the ones that think they have it all figured out. Like, all you've got to do is believe in Jesus. That's all you need. All you've got to do is believe God exists and you'll go to heaven. Every one of the answers is wrong. Very few people, you know, actually have a deep, I guess, description of what they would call a Christian. Um, I wore this today for one reason. Actually, I wore it for multiple reasons. But the biggest reason is last time I had a button-down shirt on. I sweat really bad. It wasn't who I was. I wasn't comfortable in a button-down shirt. I wear that five days a week, and I don't like it. I'm more comfortable in this. But the reason that I'm in this and the reason that I wanted to be comfortable is because it's time. If we're going to talk about what a real Christian is, is we need to get past the masks. We need to get past the people that are faking it. You know, you shouldn't have to come up here and put on a suit and a tie if that's not what you're used to wearing. You need to be you when you talk to other people about Christ. People need to see the genuine you, and that genuine you needs to portray Christ and his love. If they don't see it coming from you as genuine, they're going to look at it and they're going to call you a hypocrite right along with everybody else. It's not about this is a certain occasion you need to do this. You need to be you. You need to speak from your heart. God needs to speak through you from your heart. And that's what we need the Christians nowadays to do. I looked up 
in the worldly in, in the Merriam-Webster dictionary what their definition, what the world's definition of a Christian is. They had two definitions. They actually had a couple, but two only applied to us. One who professes belief in teachings of Jesus or members of the Christian denomination. I have a problem with this first definition because it takes more than belief. Satan believes Jesus exists. Satan knows Jesus exists. It takes more than belief. Our own worldly dictionary cuts it right there, cut and dry. That's what a Christian is, and that's not right. But too many people have gotten wrapped up in that. They believe all they have to do is believe in Jesus. They don't have to act out anything he commands us. They don't have to follow him. They don't have to give their life to him. They don't have to live their life for him. They simply need to believe that he exists. That's not good enough. I work at a university and I can tell you if you believe you're going to get an A on a test, that's not good enough. (laughs) Trust me, I've tried. And sitting down before the test 10 minutes and flipping through the back of that book and looking up the word stress to see what God can tell you that will help you with it, that doesn't help you get an A on the test either. It's constant living it out. As in, in the test, it would take constant studying up to that point. We learned in Sunday school today, in our Sunday school class in the youth, God's going to judge us all at the end. And it doesn't matter if you're rich, it doesn't matter if you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're smart, it doesn't matter if you're dumb. You can live life as, with as much knowledge as you think you need, but if you don't have the knowledge and live with the wisdom of Christ, you're no better off than someone who'd never heard of it. You're going to be judged just the same. I want you to look... This one's not in Matthew, so I apologize. I was wrong. Start in Acts, verse eleven twenty-six. It's the first point in the Bible where the word Christian is ever even uttered. It's the first time that the followers of Christ were called Christians. Notice that it wasn't in Genesis. It wasn't in Exodus. It wasn't in Job, Proverbs, or Psalms. It wasn't in the Old Testament. And it actually takes a while into the New Testament before we're ever labeled as Christians. The Romans originally labeled us as Christians for one reason. I found this profound when I read the bottom in there in the footnotes of the Bible, where it said that the Romans called us Christians because they were recognizable by their beliefs and actions in Jesus. People that didn't believe in Christ could see enough belief and enough action through a group of individuals that they gave the godly label of Christians to us. We need to get back to that. We as a society have got away from that. I've gotten away from that. As you talk to Brent about the amount I complain after Sunday morning, Sunday school, or church, or during youth impact, sometimes the amount of judgmental words that come out of my mouth are astounding. I struggle with it daily, and I'm sure a lot of people in here do too. It's a constant struggle. But there's words in this book that allow us to go through and have the reassurance of what Christ has promised us. Uh, Rachel Paris in my Sunday school class this morning when we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, it's weird when you look at that book, in that individual book. It doesn't stand out as a, 
something you really want to take all the advice of that particular book. You know, life's, you know, life's not worth it. Don't worry about it. I don't like work. You know, Solomon's rant. But you need to look at it in a different perspective. That's there to show you what life apart from God is like. That's why it's there. It's truth. But it's truth to show you what it's like to be separated from God. And unfortunately, it seems like the more we keep going in society and the more we keep saying, well, I only need to obey this many rules and I don't need to obey all of what Christ commands me. I just simply need to believe in him and go about my life. Nothing needs to change. I don't need to change my actions. I don't need to change who, how I, you know, what I say. We keep going farther and farther down that path. The Greek word that Christian is based off of is Christianos, which means an adherent of Christ or a slave to Christ. You need to give up everything. Give up control and give it to Christ. That means living for Him. That means skipping those social functions if you really feel God's leading you to take part in something at the church. That's a difficult one for me. If you look at this shirt, this takes precedent an awful lot of the time. Football, basketball. I'm a sports nut. I always have been. And it gets in the way of... I use the word. It gets in the way of me serving God. Not in the way that it's keeping me from having fun. It's keeping me from helping and serving Christ the way it needs to be. We talk about, well, what do you need to, you know, what, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, that Christ commands us to do? You know, love your neighbor as you'd love yourself. You know, we kind of forget that last part. I love them. You love them as much as you love yourself. Would you do for them everything you would do for yourself? It's a question we need to ask. Because I know I don't always do that. I think I'm treating them good. It's just because I'm treating them better than I treat some other people. It doesn't mean I'm loving them like I love myself. We live in a world where words travel like lightning. You know, the Bible talks about how our tongue spews forth evil. And it's the only muscle we can't tame. But we live in a world where if you own one of these, it doesn't take your tongue to spread it across the world in an instant and harm somebody on the other side of the earth. Words travel. Actions travel. We need to make sure that we're following what Christ wants us to do. Leads me to my next point. And hopefully we'll make a circle when I get done with this. Um... If you can do this, if you can be the, Bible, the biblical definition of a Christian, the hope and the command of Christ is to go and make disciples. You can't make disciples if you're not already one. It's hard to teach the student if you don't have the knowledge of what you need to teach. So in order to do that, we need to become disciples. I looked this up in our dictionary. Before we get to the biblical definition, we'll get to the dictionary. The dictionary states that a disciple is one who accepts and, and is the key word here, and assists in spreading the doctrine of another. That shows belief and action. 
because that's what it takes. Actions won't get you into heaven. But actions from your faith, when your actions change because of the amount of faith you have, those actions should represent Christ. It's not that you're doing them to get into heaven. You've accepted the fact that God's forgiven you and you have a place with him in heaven. And you're so thankful and praiseful for that, that your actions and the love of Christ overflows from your heart to a point where other people see it. Other people notice you're different. You're not flaunting it. You're not saying, look what I have and you don't. You're simply following on obeying Christ. And you're asking that He you know, continue to be with you. Another one of the definitions they had was a convinced adherent. That word adherent stuck out because it matches what the actual biblical definition of a Christian is. You are absolutely convinced 110% without a doubt in your mind that Jesus was nailed to that cross. That when he was nailed to that cross, he became sin for us. He took every last ounce of God's wrath upon him so that we wouldn't have to. He experienced what it was like for God to turn his back on him when he took that wrath. I don't know, and I don't really think anybody in here probably knows what it's like to be completely separated from God. You may think at times that God has left you, but God never leaves you. He's promised to never leave you while you're here. God has been through your side, by your side in the good times, in the bad times. Sad times, happy times. He's been there. I want you to imagine for a moment, think of all the blessings you have in your life. Imagine what it would be like if none of those ever existed because you were separated from God. Think if you were held to that standard of perfection. Because if we were held to a standard of perfection, I can tell you between the hours of... By 50 and 6 o'clock, I'm going to hell. I've already messed up. I got so worried coming up here today. I told Brent, I told Karen that I was, I was more nervous about this one than I had been about the last one, about any of them. I couldn't figure out why. It's because I think deep down inside, I let ego get in the way. It started not to become about Christ. It started to become about how great of a message I could, I could deliver to the group. But it's not about me. It's about him. Think back to some of the best, or think back to some of the most well-known disciples. You've got the original 12, originally called in Matthew 4.18. Um, it amazes me when you look at Matthew 4.18. And it says, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Obedience. Absolute obedience. If Christ walked through the door today and asked you to drop absolutely everything you did, walk away from your life and follow him, would you do it? Would you be willing to take on all the repercussions that that 
entails. They left everything. They didn't leave a boat in a net. They left everything. It doesn't say they went back to their house and packed a bag. It doesn't say that they went home and threw a party so everybody could say farewell to them and wish them good luck. They dropped everything and immediately followed Christ. Obedience. Part of being a disciple. If you look at Matthew 10, 24. If I can get to the right page. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. They're humble. They understand the person you are discipling, the person you are training to be a disciple, is no different than you are. Maybe at the beginning, maybe, they've, maybe you've heard the word of Christ and they haven't. But in God's eyes, they're no different than you are. You're not perfect. They're not perfect. Take the active role and be the teacher. Make disciples. But don't ever look down upon the student. And the student should never have to look up to the master. You're equals. The point in your obedience and being humble. Think of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross because that's what God had laid out for him to do. He was God. He could have very easily just pulled himself down off the cross. He could have sat there and said, in the middle of getting pummeled, in the middle of getting beaten, in the middle of having his hands nailed to that cross, he could have very simply got off the cross and said, it's not worth it. But he was obedient. He followed through with it. He didn't come as a king, per se. He didn't come with riches. He didn't come. He came as a humble carpenter. He came as an ordinary man. The things about the disciple is that as you're trying to become more like Christ, you start to take on the characteristics of Christ. Look at verse 10, verse 1. Or chapter 10, verse 1, not verse 10, verse 1. Summoning his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. That doesn't sound like something that he bestows on people he doesn't trust or that don't know. You know, we hear the story about the storm that he calmed. How many times did Jesus have to tell one of his disciples, you of little faith? Because when they had faith, they could do marvelous things. It was the faith and the trust in Christ that allowed them to do the things that he had blessed them with. To be able to heal the diseases. They went out as disciples and did these things. Not so that they could show off to see what great works they could do. But he did it. they did this in order to glorify God. We sometimes think when we go through rough patches, we don't understand how or why God does what he does. But think back to Exodus and think when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And he told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him, do these things. And then he added that thing on the end and said, but I will harden his heart. And he won't let you go. All of these things were planned. 
The Israelites' struggles got worse before they got better. They got to the Red Sea and didn't know where they were going to go until he parted it. After the Red Sea, they got to a point where they didn't have any food and they didn't know what they was going to do until he provided it. It's trust. He knows the big picture. We have to trust him through all of the things that go on. The one thing we need to keep in mind when we talk about disciple is just like the Christian word, it can be mis- misused. If you look at that definition of disciple, all it says is spreading one who accepts and assists in the spreading the doctrine of another. We have good examples. We have bad examples. John the Baptist had disciples. Um, John the Baptist, I would say, was a disciple even before Christ was here. He believed. He followed Christ even up till death. And you have bad disciples. Take a look at the Pharisees. They claim to be disciples of Moses. I think claim is a key word there because I don't think if Moses was around that he would have been real keen on how they were acting. You have to be careful because it's not about the rules. It's not about following some set order of things that have been set down. Um, Before I say this, I am not meaning to offend anybody in here. I grew up Lutheran, so I can say it. I grew up in the Lutheran church. We had a set service. I mean, set. I could tell you that if it was a normal service, it would be over in exactly 57 minutes. If it was a communion service, it took an hour and 37 minutes. Specific amount of hymns. They were always the same amount of lines. The preacher was always at the pulpit. He was always right here. Put his hands like this, and he always talked in a monotone voice like this because emotion was not allowed when talking about God. It was set. That was his style. He did it very well. I can tell you that my preacher that I grew up with was one of the most godly men I've ever known. He lived absolutely every single thing he preached at that pulpit, to the best of my knowledge. He'll tell you he's not perfect. I'm sure he wasn't. But to me, if you wanted to see an example of what it was like to be a disciple of Christ and live a godly life, you looked at him right after you looked at Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, is it shouldn't have mattered if somebody wanted to walk up there to that pulpit wearing pajamas and start screaming and really getting in and emotional talking about God and running from one end of the church to the other. Because if that's what God was speaking through their heart, that's what he's asking of you and that's what he's asking of us. We cannot get caught up in the rules. We cannot... Youth, that doesn't mean you can break them. I'm not responsible for anything that happens. Don't get caught up in the way things are supposed to be. Be different. Stand out. Be the disciple to your fellow students. Be a disciple to your parents if they need it. Be a disciple to everybody you come in contact with. Travis uh, preached last Sunday during Youth Sunday off this verse I'm about to read in Matthew 28. The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's commanded us to go make disciples. 
as complicated as it may sound, it's a very easy thing to follow. Simply make yourself one, train somebody else, and train them to make more. Here's the catch. It may take you a lifetime to train one. Can't get discouraged. I have, or I had the fortunate ability to grow up in a house that was, I hate to use the word religious, God was very much in the house, we'll put it that way. Uh, my grandmother, God bless her, uh, is still going strong and probably one of the most godly women, godly women I've ever met. So was my grandfather. Uh, I had the great privilege of watching my grandfather on my father's side get baptized at age 73 or 74 in the pool out back behind the house. That was a good moment, especially since he passed away approximately a year right after that. To know where he's at is a comforting feeling. But it takes being a disciple. The reason he got baptized was because my grandmother that lived with him had been someone that followed Christ for years and had poked and had prodded and had prayed and pulled him to church on Sundays, which upset my dad something fierce since they went fishing on Sundays. And if he listens to this on the radio, I'm sorry. Um, it's about God. It's about putting him in first. One of the things I didn't mention here at the beginning, I thought maybe you'd do better here, I want this to kind of be a shock to everybody. 60 to 70 percent of Americans identify themselves as Christians. And I don't know how many people approximately live in the United States, but that's a whole bunch that call themselves Christians. Nine percent of that 70 percent say that God's number one in their life. I would imagine you can probably cut that percentage down further when you take the ones that just said God's number one in their life and put it against the ones that actually has God as number one in their life. It's a scary statistic. Very, very scary. But our job is to go to those people. Our job is to teach them what Christ has done in our lives and what Christ promises he'll do in theirs. And help them see the light. To succeed. I guarantee you, if you get to a point where you are a disciple of Christ, where you can get to a point where you're literally living your life for God, you will be a godly Christian and not the worldly definition that's on that paper. It goes around in a circle. If you can get to that point where you're a disciple, and no, you won't be perfect. None of us are. But if you can get to that point where you're living for Christ and you're putting God first in your life, you will not be in that group of those worldly Christians. You'll be in that group of that Christians that's written there in the Bible on what it really means. I want to issue a challenge to anybody here that's a believer. We have to allow ourselves to be taught by God. We have to learn from the rough times. We have to thank and praise Him in the rough times, and especially in the good times. We have to take the lessons He gives us. 
This book is here and has been passed through the ages as it was written so that we have the instruction manual here. The words there will not help you with every decision you have in life. We discussed this in Sunday school. Who was there? Trevor was there. And I mentioned the fact that if you're dating three different women and you want to know which one to choose, I don't think if you open that book and you say, where in here is it going to tell me which one to choose? It's not going to be in there. It's probably going to ask you why you're dating three at the same time to begin with. But I guarantee you it's not going to tell you whether to pick A, B, or C. It simply has God's word for you on how to live your life. And if you figure out how to live your life, then you'll have the notion, get really cliche here, what would Jesus do? And do that. In order to do this, you should turn to John chapter 14, verse 1. You've got to believe in Jesus. Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You have to believe that he was fully man and fully God. You have to believe that he came down here and lived a perfect life. You have to believe that he was nailed to that cross. That he was flogged ahead of that. You have to believe that they put him in that tomb and they rolled a stone in front of it. That he actually died when he was on that cross, when he gave up his life for us. And you have to believe that three days later, he got up from that grave and is still alive today. You have to believe. Secondly, you have to trust in Jesus. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. That's a big one. I have things I'm going through now that I don't understand why I'm going through them. But I have to trust that God does. There were a lot of things in my past I didn't know why I went through them. Some he's revealed why I have went through them. Some he hasn't quite yet. But I have to believe that he's in control. And I have to trust him. I like Brother Dwayne always uses the chair example. If you can sit there and trust that chair all you want, that it's going to hold you up. But until you sit in it, have you really ever trusted it? You ever really had faith in it? You've got to have trust in God. That He is always in control and that you can do all things through Him. Thirdly, we have to live for Jesus. Anybody that was on the uh, huge trip this summer want to quote this when I read out the Bible verse? No volunteers. Galatians 2.20 And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Live for Christ. It's a powerful, powerful way to live. It's not easy. not always going to be fun. And it's not always going to be smooth. But I... If you live your life for Christ, the power you have 
is greater than any power that anybody here on earth can give you. It's greater than the greatest weapon that any man, any person here on earth can give you. It's greater than anything. If you live your life for Christ, you have the power of God within you. And Satan can't beat that. He can try all he wants, but I've read the last book in that Bible, and I guarantee you he loses. I remember telling Dwayne that I was reading the Left Behind series, and I told him how great of a set of books it was, because I don't ever read books that I know how it ends. So, this last part here. We must make a commitment. Must make an commitment to God. I'll pull Dwayne's stump by walking down here because I need to hear this as much as anybody else. You've got to make a commitment. Whether you're going to work on Monday morning, whether you're walking in a classroom Monday morning, whether you're walking through the mall, I don't care where you're at or what you're doing. We've got to make a commitment to Christ and we've got to make a commitment to live our lives every second of every day for Jesus Christ. He was good enough and perfect enough to come down here with His grace and die on that cross for you. The least we can do is live our lives for Him and make a commitment to follow Him every single day of our lives. To kind of wrap things up, I didn't want this to come off as pushing. I didn't want this to come off as Jesse was throwing things down our throat, telling us exactly what we weren't doing. God's convicted me. Talk to Steve a lot about this when we talk about discipleship and making disciples. God has shown me that when I sit in that Sunday school classroom on Sunday morning, sitting at a table and reading scripture to those students, that's fine if that's what he's calling me to do. But if he's calling me to do that, but he's calling me to make disciples, and once I walk out of that Sunday school class on Sunday mornings, I ignore him for the rest of the week, I'm not doing a good enough job. I need to up my commitment. We need to, as a church, whether it's youth, whether it's adults, examine your life. And see if you're living your life for Christ. Are sports taking over? Is Facebook taking over? Is work taking over? How about financial issues? Are those taking over? Make a commitment to Christ. You could come up here today, sit at the altar, and pray to God and say, I give you everything. I'm done. It's all on you. And if you can walk away from that with a clear heart and trusting God, I applaud you. But I will, I will probably say that it's not nearly as easy for most of us to walk up here and simply say, it's yours, walk out the door, and we're fine. It's a struggle. But we get back to the trust in Christ.
it's important to me to talk that I talked about this today because I can't tell you how much it hurts to work on a campus of close to 20,000 people. That's just students. And know how many of them are lost. I tell you this today because I need your help. I need the help of anybody that's willing. And you can start here. You don't have to go to SIU to do it. I challenge you to find somebody and disciple them. They don't have to be a youth. They don't have to be an adult. Find somebody that you feel God's leading you toward. Disciple that person. Share what God has done in your life with that person. And walk them through. And be persistent. Not overbearing. Persistent. A lot of people need prayer. My grandmother did not get my grandpa to go to church on a Sunday by simply badgering him every single week. She prayed a lot about it. And there was the constant, hey, do you want to go to church? No, I don't want to go today. Okay. But obviously, eventually, it paid off. Be fervent in prayer. Commit to Christ. And make disciples, please. We need to make disciples so that they can go out there and disciple other people. We have a plain load of people on their way back from a mission trip that just went out and spread Christ's love to a foreign country. They planted the seed to make disciples because at first it takes the word to grow and to teach before we can start making disciples. It's all I'm asking is plant, plant the seed. Find somebody and plant the seed. I wanted to do an invitation. But here's what I'll do instead. Quasi-invitation. I'm not going to make you come down front. I'm not going to make you come to the altar. If you've never heard of this Jesus we've been talking about today, this person that I've been telling you to live your life like, trust in, and believe in, if you've never heard about him, find me, find Dave, find Brent after this service, because I guarantee you we'd be more than willing to share with you about him and how great of a Savior he really is. If you're sitting in this room today and you already believe in Jesus Christ and and you're living your life for him, all I ask is this. Share it. Share it with as many people as you can. We should be screaming from the rooftops about all that God's done in our lives. Because he's blessed us all more than any of us could ever, ever possibly imagine just simply by living in the country we live in. And having the ability to be in a room like this tonight and openly share. That's all I ask. And that's what I'll leave you with. You want to bow your head? We'll close in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you. For your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that you so graciously sent here for us. Lord, we understand it's not easy to go about and talk to people. Steve talked a couple weeks ago about how hard it is sometimes to share 
simply what God has done with our lives and the people that are right across the street. Lord, I ask that you give us the courage necessary to speak to those people. You wipe away the fear that we would have, Lord, and allow us to speak and praise your name and tell people clear across the globe, starting right here in this room, going to the community, going throughout the state, going throughout the country, and then throughout the world about your precious Son, Jesus' name, and all of your glory. Lord, I ask that you be with us all as we go about this week. Allow us to find people, Lord, that you have placed in our lives for a purpose. Allow us to know that purpose, Lord, and direct us towards it. Lord, once again, I praise you for everything you've blessed us with, and I praise you for the wonderfully blessed people that are here tonight. Lord, I ask that you be with our mission team as they are on their uh, final legs of their trip on the way back. May you allow their travels to go safe, bring them back safely. And Lord, allow us to hear of your work that you did while they were gone. And allow them to share the stories of how you impacted hundreds and hundreds to thousands of people in a foreign country. Lord, we pray this all in your precious son, Jesus, who came down from heaven and died on the cross for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.